Welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques, sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Now, here are Scott and Bill. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 263, and I am Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And here we are, Bill, back in the saddle again. Yeah, and you, uh, we continue to enjoy this, uh, the green screen. Wait, wait, there's nothing that, we, I feel like we haven't even scratched this. Oh, no, no, we haven't even begun. Although, uh, I love the U-boat <laughs> and the bunker we all wish we had. It, it was slowly, it was it was a little random. but Yeah, it was random, but I, you know, I think the bunker of U-boat, I also, um, yeah, not that I don't like the decorum you have here, but the one that the bunker with the skylight and the bar. Skylight was, was nice. Yeah, that was that was. Now nice. we just have our, if you're watching on Facebook, we just have our logo on right now. Yeah. I, uh, by the way, I'm also wearing uh, the uh, Steeler t-shirt that came out after the, uh, attack on the synagogue in Pittsburgh last year, Stronger Than Hate. And this is my message to the Israeli voters tomorrow. Don't vote for hate. Vote against Netanyahu. All right. I like that. Yeah. I mean, he's gotten um, – he's another person trying to get elected so he doesn't go to jail. <laughs> that, he's know, been a diet. It's really fascinating. But it, he – It's very fa- yeah. interesting. They explained on the Commentary Magazine podcast, like, the complexities of the Israeli – justice system oh yeah and because yeah. well they first of all they don't have a constitution a lot of country well not a lot but england doesn't yeah right but it, yeah it also has a few lots of centuries of <laughs> well it's a common law it's yeah, a functional yeah, yeah yeah although churchill was an admirer of our written constitution yeah no i think there's a lot of reasons good reasons to have a written constitution but yeah netanyahu if you missed it over the weekend came out and said if he's elected he'll annex all the illegal settlements in the West Bank, which he didn't call illegal, but they are. Um, so he is desperate. He's doing whatever he can to get that settled. What if vote. he said he'd annex Puerto Rico? Because I feel like they might get better treatment. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what I'd <laughs> Well, it'd be go good to get some of that uh, technology and aid, but. Uh, you know, annex yeah, Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah. And also, we uh, no longer have the uh, Secretary of Homeland Security that everyone nope. loved. Yeah. She never, she never uh, oozed. Uh, competence. Uh, Who's <laughs> competence? It's an interesting metaphor, yeah, as yeah. though competence is like a sore. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't have it in her pores, that's for I'm sure. Just oozing confidence. Oozing confidence. Oozing. So, well, you've heard, yeah, oozing charisma. She didn't have that, yeah. Although I did read today, you know, again, I, I wasn't there, so I don't know if it's true or not, but one of the things uh, that she and President Trump clashed about was he wanted to bring, a back, he wanted to bring back the family separation policy. And she was against that. Is that so he could get rid of Eric or what? <laughs> or Tiffany, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tiffany she's, is the tell-all I'd want. Yeah, she's she, – uh, well, also, yeah. She, of course, uh, she's also the, the uh, cabinet member that told us that the cage wasn't a cage. So, you know. Sometimes a cage is just a cage. <laughs> cage. Other times, uh, I don't know what it is. It's a fenced-in yard, maybe, huh? right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, that's um, – Yeah, so – any rate, that's uh, but uh, yeah, I think um, yeah, I think the Israeli election tomorrow is, is actually a um, very critical one for the region, and, and um, 
But isn't the Labour Party kind of at this place of sort of notorious weakness? Oh, it's, well, that's been that's been like, that's that's probably the only reason I would well not the only, but I think one of the chief reason Netanyahu has been there for thirteen years is the way the Labour Party imploded and uh, so and and corruption of its leaders and things like that. So and I think part of also uh, you know the Second Intifada significantly changed the landscape there. In terms of, uh, first of all, it kind of took out so much air out of the peace process. And also, the security measures that have been taken since then, you know, Palestinians or, you know, Arab Palestinians and um, Israelis used to interact so much more. Matter of fact, probably the place where um, non, okay, there are, of course, there's a whole category of Israeli Arabs who are citizens of the state of Israel, but the non citizens, the Arab interactions with with Israelis probably where that happens the most is with the settlements because the settlements are, you know, very they're often very economically tied into uh, their their Arab neighbors. Now they've exploited, they've taken their land, but there's a lot of economic interdependence. Matter of fact, that's one of the things about divesting from uh, things in the West Bank. That sounds like that's kind of creating a moral. Clarity, as opposed, we're not just divesting from Israel, but the illegal settlements in the West Bank. But that economically probably hurts Palestinians as much, if not worse, than the uh, Israeli settlers there. So it's very, very complicated. There was a great moment in the Unorthodox podcast where a, a BDS activist, of course, during the the boycott of Israeli stuff, right. Ilya Leibowitz said, well, "What if your daughter needed had a life threatening disease and only could be saved?" by a medicine made in Israel, would you then still keep the boycott? She's like, that's not what the boycott's about. He's like, that's actually exactly what the boycott's about. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, yeah, sort of part of it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a little bit, that is the essence of the of boycotting questions. Yeah, one of the interesting things, though, you know, I, I've spent most of my uh, public career around this issue uh, fighting against boycott divestment sanctions and also fighting against the unfair nomenclature that Israel is an apartheid state, uh, the way it's treated to a double standard, um, often by Europe, sometimes by the United Nations. Um, but if Netanyahu does this, which he may just be bluffing to get that vote, um, you know, it, it's increasingly hard to defend um, Israel as long as it's led by the extremism of Netanyahu and whatever, and his willingness to do whatever it takes to get elected, which is actually a familiar theme for us in this country as well. So anyway, it'll be interesting to watch. Um, and, um, and again, it's very, it's, it's parliamentary systems are very, are very um, interesting and complicated. Uh, so Israel's a small country, but with very complicated problems in politics. So it might be a while before we know exactly what happens. It depends who's going to, being with whom in the coalition? Coalition governments, yeah, man. Yeah, it's so, exciting, coalition governments. Yeah, it's exciting unless you uh, have to live in, or if you live, and also if you have to make a if you choose to make alignments with openly racist parties. So, anyway, that we'll, we shall see. But uh, I wish the people of Israel well, and I wish uh, is turnout high in Israel. I am sh I'm sure it's uh, higher. Well, I don't know. Is. You know, well, of course, the Arab population, uh, the Arab Israelis often boycott the elections because they feel it's unfair. So um, I don't, I don't, you know, it's, I think it's been, of course, ours has been going up. So I can't, I, you know, I used to know that. I don't know that now. Or at least I don't know it for recent history.
All right. That's interesting. If anybody knows about, we could Google it, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah. Well, we'll probably see the numbers. So we are probably a low, uh, we're on the lower end, right? In the United States of like per capita participation. Uh, we have been. I, again, although that, last midterms was. It's been getting better. Yeah. Really. It's been getting better. Yeah. Yeah. Trump, like many things, just makes things better. People just, <laughs> yeah. I, they, they had a, a debate on the Intelligence Squared podcast, which is great. I mean, these debates, they're amazing. I mean, they have mm-hmm. like, should we bring back extinct species? Uh, are liberals stifling free speech on campus? I mean, they, they have amazing. Yeah, right. uh, uh, will is retailing, is retail uh, sector, the retail sector, the way to revolutionize the health system. It's amazing. They had one. It was all Republicans. It was flake. Uh, and Brett Stevens versus Chris Cook, the guy who ran for governor and lost Chris Cop or something. He lost for Kansas governor and another woman from Fox on should the Republican Party renominate Donald Trump. It was a really interesting debate. And at the end, Chris, what's his face? The guy who lost the mayoral or the governor's race in Kansas. And come on, everybody. He just makes things more fun. Yeah, I like <laughs> TV better. I'm like, wow, that's an interesting argument wow. for yeah. fun. Fun. Let's yeah. do it for fun. Yeah, speaking of fun. Speaking of fun, let's talk about Christological interpretation of Scripture. Yeah, and particularly... Uh, you were, This was brought to your attention, correct, by yeah, I, Kenneth I, Tanner, and, and friend I, of the I, show? Yeah, I didn't read... Maybe I didn't read it too closely. Joe, I could reread it. It didn't, res- it didn't stop me from responding. <laughs> no, it never does. never should. Do you want me to read it aloud? Yeah, read it aloud. <laughs> okay. This is most recent, or... Uh, Oh, it's last week or sometime, I think. Last week. Uh, yesterday. So we're going further back than yesterday on the Facebook okay. feed. Was this on his personal feed? I think so. I think so. But it was basically uh, talking about, I guess, kind of a call to um, appreciate what the early church fathers did in their approach to the Old Testament uh, by emphasizing a Christological interpretation of of. Not, maybe even not even the Messianic text, but look at look at all of it. I mean, I think even you know, it's kind of the old. It's kind of some of us who grew up among um, in fundamentalist circles. You know that that it's interesting. We were keeping the early church alive without even knowing it when we saw um, like every time there was a ah uh, here we go every time there was a theophany that was Christ already here. So go ahead. Thursday, Augustine says. Yeah, no theophanies could be the pre-incarnate, yeah, so, because yeah. the incarnate. So he's very he's against it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not saying either way. You have to agree with that, but yeah. I'm just saying it's very interesting. Yeah. So Kenneth Tanner, forty four twenty two p.m. last Thursday, <laughs> Facebook says <laughs> contemporary conservatives and liberals too often fail to read the Old Testament with the Church. The need to grapple with how Irenaeus and Origen read what they collectively call the prophetic books. These books, which the first Christians called the archives or the scriptures, serve the story of Jesus, showing how his death and resurrection saved humanity and the cosmos. Their purpose, or this is their purpose in the life of the church, they are not a revelation of God apart from the flesh of Jesus Christ. Contemporary scholars and readers alike can humble themselves at the feet of these ancient exegetes who, in their youth and formation, sat at the feet of the apostolic Preachers who were taught to read their scriptures, our Old Testament, by our Lord Jesus himself in the 40-day period before his ascension. And he goes on to talk about Ignatius and Justin, and he goes on with a couple more uh, notes, and he says, at the conclusion, it's good to be liberated from fundamentalist and materialist readings by the Christocentric vision of these people from another time who suffered with Christ for our illumination. Okay. Which I think... 
on one aspect is fine. I mean, I think there's a sense where I actually, you know, I'm very thankful for being trained in the historical critical method and uh, all the all the critical methods that have come since then. And, and I think it makes me a better reader of the Bible, better exegete. It certainly makes me a better scholar. And for me, it makes me a better pastor. But uh, so I certainly deeply appreciate Matter of fact, I've spent a good part of my career uh, trying to convince Protestant seminarians the value of people like Irenaeus and Origen and Augustine and that um, that our uh, our rich tradition didn't begin in the second half of 1518 <laughs> 1518 right yeah. we said we so that we have a we have a rich tradition particularly I think in the postmodern moment we get a little free we can be freed a little bit from uh, <clears throat> I think the burden above classic liberalism classic uh, conservatism, the kind of battles they had over the scripture. In other words, we can kind of get back to the so what uh, instead of being so uh, concerned about the what of scripture. But I, I do think it's interesting, some of the people he, he quoted too, the problem, I think, uh, there's, some, there's some real problems. First of all, my chief problem is that most of the people he quotes there or refers to um, are pretty big proponents of supersessionism, which has a very shadowy history. And that shadowy history kind of begins with a taking, uh, in some level, saying that the Hebrew scriptures no longer belong to the Jews. Matter of fact, they've not only no longer, it's now a Christian book, they've lost the right to that story. Now, he's certainly not saying anything that strong, but that is one of the implications. And, you know, I didn't realize this, but we have you know, Marcy and I, Marcy is, Marcy is coming back, apparently. Uh, were you, who was it? Andy? Is it Andy Stanley? Or? Andy Stanley wrote a book that, and I have not read it. So that, so let me, but again, that's never stopped us. Yeah. <laughs> but I've read some reviews of it and, and, and the reviews quoted liberally from the author. Right. I mean, I, I did. They so, did you've, so you've read quotes from the author. Yeah. They did not strike me as, as trying to distort it. No, I mean, and he basically says, you know, look, the Old Testament, that's not what Christians are about. Kind of, I, I, I mean, it was, it was pretty hardcore well, as, as and, an apologetic sort of approach. Like how this is yeah. how we, so much of what the church is caught up with in today that makes it contextually problematic to late modern people is kind of not reading the Bible in a very Jesus centric new Testament way. And sort of, you know, again, this is a very, <laughs> you Marcy and uh, uh, a kinder, gentler Marcion. I mean, can't can't that be? I'm not saying it's what Greg Boyd does, but isn't some of the sentiment behind Greg Boyd trying to, you know, in his work trying to say the same thing, trying to get away from the bloody? Ah, uh, no, God. because he he. I'm not saying he is, but no, nah, I because he would say that Revelation is progressive and that these things are. I mean, he does not. I think it's actually. Boyd's conservatism that keeps him from, from going that route. Church. I mean, because okay, he'd right. like to go. He would like to get the, the, Yeah, I think, but he is a much more nuanced. Hey, it's if he's, he's in it, he, I feel, I still think Greg Boyd would say he's an inerrantist. I think, I mean, I'm not sure, but yeah. I think so. Well, and part of the whole thing is that um, certainly uh, there are images of God in the Hebrew scriptures that are very problematic. I would argue if you read all that Jesus says, <laughs> there are some plenty of things that Jesus says that are problematic as well. They can be harsh at times. It can be harsh. And I'm not even saying so, not even harsh, but some of the maybe some of the ways we certainly have distanced our Jesus and distanced ourselves from Jesus and, and not only his harshness, but uh, 
you know, calling people brood of vipers, uh, not fit for hell, it's, you know, that's kind of tough. Uh, I'm sorry, I paraphrase that last phrase there, but nonetheless, uh, but that's if not, you're not fit for hell, that that doesn't mean you're. That's a good thing, right? I thought that's good. It's good if you're not fit that's for right. hell. I so your snakes, your you didn't call them 19 foot pythons. <laughs> they just called them 19 not. foot, yeah, or 17 foot, whatever. How big a big python? But yeah, so you I, know I, there are snake massages. People go and you get like a I, I, a big snake and it crawls all over you, and that's the massage. Yeah, pass. and you pay for that. Pass, and you pay for that. Pass, yeah. I, pass. I think the snake should pay. <laughs> pay me. But. Yeah, it depends what the snake is out of it. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it gets the nibble on you a exactly. little bit. Yeah, take a take a finger off or something. Yeah. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you. To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedi, and Stephen Rowe, and Jody Stevenson. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. So one of the things I think that is helpful with the whole kind of re- resurgence of uh, the you know, people have rediscovered the fourfold interpretation of scripture, which was a very important tool for, throughout the Middle Ages. It's actually part of what the Protestant Reformation railed against, but uh, – like many things, we've kind of recovered some of the baby that was thrown out with the bathwater. And just to quickly review, uh, and we won't, it's basically, you know, kind of a summation of the different ways the early church read the Bible, and also borrowing from uh, strongly influenced by its interaction with Jewish exegetes, people like Origen uh, and even Jerome uh, spent a lot of time interacting with. Jewish exegetes, and and so um, and you and I were talking about this off off uh, off for camera the other day that how much of the second century preaching, for instance, if you read second century preachers, they really could have been many of them. You take Jesus out, and they could have been sermons you would have heard in a Hellenistic synagogue. They're, they have the same kind of moral, spiritual concerns that uh, diaspora Judaism had in in the same period. So basically, to give the fourfold of scripture, the, the literal interpretation is that we think we know. In other words, this is what many of us spent uh, many years reading the Gilgamesh epic to get to. In other words, and all the critical stuff. What did the original 
writer or editor intend to communicate, the literal meaning. Then the topological meaning, or sometimes called the moral meaning, is the idea that the text is given to us to um, as a way of, therefore, how shall we live? And certainly this is a lot of the emphasis of, of Jewish, this is, an, if you would, the inheritance of the from the synagogue. And some of this, right, from the time of Cash and on is 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 usually the literal sense you can interpret in light of the supernatural virtues or faith, hope, and love, but right. sometimes it's harder. And so tropological would be love. Yeah, uh, yeah, because love is the way we should live. Yeah, and, and again, uh, John Cash is the one who kind of gives us the summary of it. Uh, what's really interesting about so much of our exegetical principles come from people that don't make the cut in terms of orthodoxy. So um, Theodore, like for, Joel Osteen, I mean, no. <laughs> yeah, he was. But the origin, Theodore, uh, Tychonius, uh, Tychonius is a Donatist. Theodore gets kind of he loses out on the Monophysite, uh, the Storian battles, and then of course Origen gets excommunicated 150 years after he's dead. But That's tough. That is tough. That's a tough day. But uh, actually, all three of those people were very influential in forming some of these. So, the, all right, so we got literal, tropological, then the allegorical method. Allegorical, which correspond to uh, faith, right? That would yeah. be like teaching what the church about the church and what it should believe. Yeah, and type and topological. I mean, our, our typology is often allegorical. Okay, it can be it can be moral, it can be tropological, but you know. We often talk about you know Moses as a type, but that's also kind of an, you know it can be an, or Abraham's an allegory for the journey and such, and then anagogical, which is often called the mystical reading of the text, which certainly has made a great comeback with all the lectio divina. That's really what you're going after in the final sum of things in the in the in the whole practice of of praying the scripture. It's kind of the spiritual mystical meaning. In other words, it's kind of trying to read the Bible that that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, literally. So there's a sense where— This corresponds to hope, right? This is future expectations. But but future in the present. I mean, so it's kind of—for me, the mystical interpretation is—a good way to understand it is the Antiochian school was the literal. So they use analogy to get towards, all right, why, why should we do this? The Alexandrian school, which kind of gives us the mystical interpretation. So what is the analogy in order that we can know more about who God is? I guess, you know, one level, the moral is, who are we and how should we live before God? The spiritual mystical meaning of the text, which, you know, is often associated with the Alexandrian school, is, um, you know, how do we encounter God uh, now in this? I mean, you know, it's interesting. In some levels, the goal of Reformed preaching, um, maybe even Calvin's view of preaching, the, the the idea of encounter really in in many ways that was is supposed to be happening when the word is proclaimed the encounter with God has probably more to do with a, myst, a mystical understanding than it does a literal understanding though they he Calvin certainly would not maybe have framed it that way so that's kind of the traditional fourfold interpretation of scripture in the West and um, I think it's really helpful. Nowadays, uh, I think we have the let me say uh, we have the freedom to reappropriate this when we approach the text. For me, though, as long as we don't lose track of at least approaching the task of of looking at the literal meaning of what the text is. For instance, if I get up in front of a congregation I'm preaching and then it's saying, you know, last night I was meditating on this text. This is what Jesus told me or God told me, and here for exactly what it means. That's to me, problematic. That's not the role of preacher or teacher. 
now, maybe and you're in a small group, the Lectio Divina, this is what I hear the text saying. That's very different. But when you're speaking in an authoritative position, then I think you have an obligation to, to stay close to the literal meaning. You're not necessarily bound. You certainly have the freedom to play with the text. But I think you have to let people know what you're doing. You know, part of the trouble, part of what drove me to out of evangelical fundamentalism was that there were great preachers, but some of the ones who weren't so great would treat their personal reading of Scripture as if that was God itself. And uh, that's certainly the worst fear of the ref- of the Reformers when they when they unleashed this revolution, and it's something that they've never actually, you know, Protestant, the Protestant movement has never been able to adequately deal with that either. So, anyway, that's my church history lecture for that. Yeah, I think one of the challenges of these kind of discussions is when we talk about the literal sense of the text, it assumes that that's available to us. And not only in the Bible, like how often do authors say it when reviewed or say, Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, I guess that. Wow. That's a deeper insight into it than I thought. Wow. And like, so it assumes that the author is the controller and conveyor of meaning, even in a book that's written uh, a year ago, which, which often, you know, hermeneutical, Studies in and outside biblical studies often talk about the complexities of uh, you see constitutional scholars, right? right. That, where we have a text that's written only a couple hundred years ago that people. I'm not talking about the constructivists, right? No, uh, originalists. Even among originalists, people can't agree. You know, like what what people mean. You know, right. like but once but once yeah, and I understand once a word is spoken or written down, it no, it kind of loses it. You know, it no longer belongs to the person who originally spoke it. Right. But I and I and I certainly understand. It. And actually, that's part of what makes that's part of what makes the whole dynamic nature of biblical interpretation, because each, each generation has not only the right to struggle with what the text means in its current time, but an obligation. But I do think you can't, I just, and sometimes, again, I know you're a theo, you're theologically, this is sometimes where the theological... Well, this isn't even theological. This is from no, atheistic presuppositions. No, I'm just I, talking about... But I know sometimes theologians jump jump away from the text. I mean, I've even heard... I, I want us to get into a phenomenological engagement. I want to get further down the biblical studies, but I want to get actually to the phenomenological exercise of reading. All right. Which is, I think, often we assume we have access to things we don't have access well, to. Well, no, I think, no, and I think, with, and I, that's part of the humility to the text. I mean, we quoted, was it, was it, did we quote this in a previous recent podcast, Bart? What are the scriptures? The scriptures, are, are, oh, yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the memory of the, of the echo. echo of the word. Yeah. And, and again, the other thing that the early church had that we maybe need to regain is a suspicion about words anyway. Or not, but not suspicion, but, that's, I guess that would be the modern. <laughs> we have suspicion. But they had a, a, a sense of the limitation of words. So I think the early church understanding the limitation of the words kind of serves the same thing that, you know, a phenomenological approach to the reading saying, okay, can, you know, and did Paul, did Paul fully understand the implications of what he was saying? Um, maybe the, one of the most self reflective writers of the Holy Scriptures. And my answer would be probably no, I'm sure he, he sure did. Right, right, right. But, I do think it matters to try to reconstruct some of okay. What did what how what were some of the issues with the original hearers? Because I do think that's one control over just running down all kinds of rabbit trails. Now you might say it's ultimately why the Protestant movement fails because exactly what you said. If the text is the final authority, uh, the true meaning of the text is the final authority. Then you've just created. It's kind of like. It's the same kind of problem 
Well, the Bible is inerrant in the original manuscripts, which no one can, there is no copies of. So if the literal meaning of the Bible is the ultimate authority, and that's what you believe, then I think that's the problem. That's, that is the, pro- the problem that Protestantism has never quite. Yeah, so, I would even say if, if the true meaning of the text, if the meaning of the text is multivalent, then you're not in a nihilistic position because, you know, things like the fourfold interpretation, things like this are not mutually exclusive. If the true meaning of the text is a reconstruction of the census literalis, then any interpretation is nihilistic because we can never get to get there. it. Yeah, same thing. We can like, only approximate at best. Yeah, it's the same thing like saying that only the original manuscripts are. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so it's the same problem. And I do think there's a sense where if you trust that the Holy Spirit or if you believe or you actually have a theological foundation that the that the church is part of the process, that the keys, that literally what, you know, the Jesus kind of understood this problem. Okay, I'm not going to be around. You're probably going to mess up my words. And the ones you get right, you're not going to listen to. All right. So here, by giving the keys of the kingdom, it does give the church the responsibility, if you would, to, to be engaged in this process. The other thing I would also say is, and this is where I would, would affirm uh, Ken point, pointing back to the church fathers, and I, you know, and it could be, you know, I think any um, profound interpreter of scripture, uh, whatever age they live in, is part of the great cloud of witnesses. What we do is we give, it's kind of like the rabbinical method. All right, here's what we think the interpretation is, and that kind of matters. But we also realize that around the page, there are other alternative interpretations, even to the point where the minority position uh, may be the one that ultimately, you know, a generation down the road or, you know, hundreds of years down the road might be the one that the community needs at a particular time. So I, I think that approach to the text, which understands that, you know, this isn't the Book of Mormon, this isn't the Quran in the sense of how um, both Mormons and uh, Muslims see the nature of interp- or nature of revelation, but that it's always been a. I mean, even how do you? I mean, I don't know how you not believe in in editors that work in the in the Old Testament. So there's a sense where we've you know you have to just kind of be the same you know be a flat earther in your approach to scripture. Hey, no, that, that's. Let's not joke around with fly. That's coming back, man. Uh, well, I was going to go six year literal creation, but I I, Howard Stern had, had sent one of his like staff down to a flat Earth conference, like six hundred people in a hotel in North Carolina, and one guy said that he thinks Trump knows the Earth's flat, but he knows that if he tells us, the CIA will do him just like he, they did Kennedy. So he's got to pretend he Trump is really with them. Well, now I actually might believe that. <laughs> <laughs> that part's credible to me that he might think the world is flat. By the way, uh, are you going to? I have to get this book. The uh, how what Trump Trump and golf what it says about uh, dude. That guy being interviewed was fascinating. Well, he, he's a great he's a great writer. Yeah, he's a great writer, John Ryan. But the John. caddy said the president doesn't cheat. We cheat for him. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, I mean, that gives new meaning to the word when he says, "Well, Lindsey Graham says how bad Trump beat him." I was like, "Oh, okay." Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Uh, by the way, we need to get out on the links. I'm ready to go. I'm ready too. Yeah. I'm ready. Um, but all right. So, I, how do you approach? Okay, given that you're, you you approach these, you're more of a uh, approach these things more from a theologian than a biblical exegete or historical the way I do. How do you deal with the whole idea of of the problem of well, uh, 
uh, maybe supersessionism is not a problem for you, but let's say the problem of a Christocentric approach to the scriptures, how do you deal with then the Jewish question or our relationship with Judaism? No, I mean, I would say that, that you don't, you could read the text Christologically and not be supersessionist. I, mean, which, I, which think, I, I, I think Paul does this, right? I, I think Paul yeah. absolutely does it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I think like, and also, you know, it's as Jensen says too, neither the church or the synagogue is sort of the continuation of the religion of Israel. I think it's sort of like, you know, after the destruction of the temple and, and massive changes, you have two groups that, you know, basically take on the scriptures of the religion of Israel and do a reinterpretive kind of right. move. And so, so I mean, because it, it, I think that's a great point because, you know, the sacrificial system right. was a pretty big deal, you know, before, although there certainly were loud uh, voices within Israel that called the whole uh, institution of the sacrificial system in question long before the temple right. was destroyed. Sure. Jeremiah, sure. you know, a number of them, yeah. and even Isaiah and the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. So I, I like, I think that, I wouldn't say that a Christological reading precludes the fact that you, no, you realize that, hey, the Jews will read this differently, and we both mm-hmm. come to these scriptures differently and understand that. But I think, so on one level, right, if we talk, like Aquinas talks about, uh, you know, the the letter and the spirit in scripture and how, you know, that for Aristotle, he says, you know, you have, you have words or signs of things, right? But in scripture, words are signs of things that also can be signs in themselves, right? right, right. And, and and I'd say even just literally, this is right. what we do with metaphors and things like that. So, so I'd want to say that that dynamic is in play. And then if you if you think that the text is in any way inspired and take that seriously, then it, it, this this sort of is the is the late modern or postmodern literary insight on steroids that, you know, the author doesn't have the last word of the meaning of their text. Well, of course, if, if the text is divinely inspired in any sense, then the author really doesn't have the final say. (laughs) And and that, that, so can there then actually be, can, can there be things like fourfold meanings that are actually rooted in the census literalis of the text, like that the author is not aware of at the time. Sure. Uh, sure. So all these things I think play. Well, that's how the early church, they thought the authors, that that God was working through and in spite of the authors. So I often think like, so even what I always find fascinating about biblical studies, right, is when biblical exegetes are, are hostile or skeptical about, quote, theological reading of scripture, well, without theology, you wouldn't have a discipline because why, I mean, yeah, it right. makes sense to study Jeremiah or Genesis or Mark or Jonah but why would you put these things in relationship to each other and say the, our discipline is studying the whole uh, the corpus in relationship to each other? Well, a theological judgment creates the discipline. So then to kind of do the discipline with atheistic presuppositions seems like schizophrenic to me. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's part of the tragedy what happened when I was, when I was with Old Testament studies uh, and somewhat New Testament studies. At Princeton, I was there. The Bernard Andersons lost that battle. Yeah, yeah. And the uh, yeah, Frank Cross's whiz kids from Harvard who came in, and you know, it's all about textual stuff. And you know, one of the reasons I, you know, my my chief passion has always been the Bible, and I would have loved to done have uh, done PhD work with Becker, and Becker wanted me to do it, but I, first of all, I was always afraid we wouldn't find him one day. <laughs> you know, he would just get, go off and get lost. But also, you know, it just wasn't the, it's not, it wasn't the future of critical New Testament, the, the, the theological issues, you know, the ones that interested me the most, that, that's not what they were doing. Now they do it someplace, but where I went at my particular time, 
it, wherever you were going to go to do your best New Testament scholarship, that's not their interests were not mine. So, um, so I. And what's interesting yeah. is now, like people like Richard Hayes and others have, and I can argue into right and others. It's it's there are a lot of people now who a lot of energy in biblical studies in certain segments, places like Duke and other places are come back around. much more. Well, and Dennis Olson is someone who was start, you know, at, at Princeton, who, uh, he's retired up, but still is someone who was a wonderful, you know, still emphasizes and, you know, others did well. I mean, that's a, that's a very carte blanche statement, but I did tell you the Becker quote about the old Testament department at Princeton one time. Uh, one of my, he, my, one of my friends there was, uh, was driving limousine, limousine, and he picked him up from some. Yeah, picked him up in New York from some conference, and he goes, "Tell me, what do you think about the Old Testament department at Princeton?" <laughs> he goes, "Well, frankly, Doctor Becker, I don't really like it. Me neither. You could train monkeys to do what they do over there." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, I think that's you know they they have to be very smart, Harvard. Train monkeys and little Hopkins as well, but no, I, I think that's obviously extreme. But I'm with I, you I, on the, the, the for me the scripture. I love trying. I, you know, I mean, I love the critical stuff. I love the ancient Near Eastern stuff. I love the Second Temple Judaism. Uh, I really enjoy all that. But I enjoy doing all that digging, if you would, to get to the theological. Well, yeah, and I think yeah. I think that certainly. You know, the, and this is where I think that the best, like, say, the medieval tradition held that the middle way. I mean, there was a sense of yes, yeah, literal, like the 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 root of the spirit of the spirit was the letter, you know, and the, it seems, and it right. got excessive at times, and and sure, and, but and the Renaissance, I mean, the early Renaissance was about yeah. getting back to better textual, critical, yeah, and it was, uh, and and certainly many of the reformers were trained in that. And I also think if you take Luke twenty four seriously, right, and the Emmaus road, and Jesus incognito, and then you know they realize who he is after he kind of disappears. Says that you know they say beginning with Moses, so we're talking about beginning with Genesis. He showed us how all the scriptures, right, and the law and the prophets points to the Christ event. So there, it seems like you have and, 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 the hermeneutical theory of Jesus, uh, the res of the risen or, Christ, or of Luke, yeah. right? Well, or, you know, or I mean, well, if I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to play the historical Jesus game no. in the sense of we could. Yeah, the, uh, the risen Christ. Here we have the churches. Well, no, yeah, okay. You have Luke's risen Christ. Let's go there. And, and we have all over the place, you know, like Hebrews, you know, sure. saying that, that oh, this the whole is book, the, the, the whole book of or Romans ten ten. You know, that Christ is the telos namas. You know, that the, the, the end of the law, that the Torah, right. that the telos of Torah. That that all but, these things are sure. So I mean, I, I think that that should for Christians govern her govern hermeneutical understanding i mean and no again that that i don't want to play that off against higher criticism and modern critical studies because we know more about the textual background and stuff like that and so also, that stuff and it was interesting we don't have any of what we don't have any of the references jesus used sure yeah, yeah it's only just a blanket statement and i've often said okay that, and i said we have to take that seriously I have trouble finding any. I, I don't. I don't know where to start with what text he's looking at. You, know, you understand what I'm saying in terms of. So it does open up to the methodology, um, even that statement. Um, and I'd say it's, it is. Well, you think about this. You think about how. Okay, so I could easily make a case that what maybe what's in Jesus. I mean, at least well, at least right. from at least from the textual witness. You know the the baptism of Jesus, right? Where the authors clearly intend it. 
to be, you hear the word speaking into creation, sure. spirit sure. hovering like a dove. So we're going back to Genesis one one. Right. right. <laughs> so, oh, John, so John one one is yeah, going right. back to Genesis. Genesis. Yeah, yeah. So so right. it seems to me that this is that that this is now again the way we do that. I think there are better right. ways, and and I think that part of what in, in certain twentieth century studies too, like typological exegesis has, has gotten, has become a cottage industry, like a renaissance of that, where I think as opposed to sort of looking at, at things in one allegorical sense, I'm using the word allegorical, not in the fourfold sense, but in the, in the broader sense of, you know, if uh, let's say you're thinking like, well, Mary and Joseph are, you know, uh, uh, leaving Egypt and, you know, they're in the desert. We know sand is yellow and yellow streets of gold. That sort of stuff where, right, right. where there's no necessary grounding as opposed to seeing uh, narrative to narrative, right? That 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 these, you know, that what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10 where he, he looks at the people of God in the Old Testament and, and seeing, you know, through baptism, Eucharist, like the story to story. There's kind of a, you know, and so I think oftentimes the, the thing that, helps us appreciate the census literalis more is the is is typological things that are that are rooted actually in narrative and literary patterns which which i think you know are often very you know revelatory but yeah i I think it's true and i also think what you said earlier i mean paul might be the best judge of what you know what is a constructive way to do it without becoming anti-semitic or or, Ah, absolutely yeah yeah one of the things and i think in, in you know for me thinking about as we go into holy week uh you know, I, often the discussion from Isaiah 53, um, someone said, well, this is clearly a prophecy about Jesus. And I go, no, I don't think it's a prophecy about Jesus. But because I believe in the crucified Christ, when I read Isaiah 53, I can't help but see Jesus. And to me, that's that's keeping that thing in tension. I mean, I think to to merely see Isaiah 53 as a prophecy of what happens on the cross is actually a failure to fully appreciate the fact that Jesus takes on the role of suffering servant. He becomes the the in person what has been the story of Israel. Right, right, and he's and he's fusing messianic identity and suffering servant identities in ways that I don't think have exegetic, exegetical precedent. Like no, I think in, yeah, no, and certain well certainly. And that text immediately becomes a way of seeing Jesus because it's hard. And and one might even argue, maybe even some of the ways the gospel narratives are constructed. But then, at what point then does the conclusion become a premise in the sense of if Aquinas is right, and that you there are there are possible meanings in the sense of literalis that the author is not privy to. So so someone like Aquinas could say that it's it's both a prophecy about something. It's not Christological and and Christological as well. I mean, or, or it's a statement about something that's not that's not, which then later has is taken up. Yeah. Well, I think at some levels, uh, the one place I I go full blown Christological uh, every time I talk about the story is the Abraham Isaac story. Right, right, right. Because that you know that's in some of I mean that may be on the kind of the deeper mystical level. There are some tragedies, obscenities that that from the from the the Hebrew scriptures. That um, that can be resolved in at least semi-satisfying ways of the person yeah. of Christ, uh, but I also think to me, and I and this may is that by you know I've you know I was talking to you when we were talking about this episode, um, how much I've learned and how much of a better exegete and I think a better Christian I am and preacher as well 
because of the time studying with Jews. Sure, and yeah. Being, and being set free from some of the per- perfectionist, triumphalistic language that creeps in, or, or is there already, uh, that actually, I think particularly with the ideas of, of theology, you see, and suffering, recapturing some of how the Jews approached their yeah, faith. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Because in reality, the perfect has not come. Uh, for the uh, it, it maybe it has been achieved in heaven, but the salvation of the cosmos has not fully trickled down through time yet. And I think that the waiting, uh, even you know, it's interesting Hebrews you pitched that, which Hebrews is one like continual object lesson uh, about how the early church read read the Bible. Um, but uh, I do think this idea, even at the end, they you know he identifies with the people who not yet received the promise. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, yeah and I think that's I mean always yeah. I think the better. The more voices you have in your head, usually, yeah. you know, you you see more. Yeah. So I think uh, my here's my here's my Uncle Bill's uh, oh, my, Uncle see. Bill's advice for preaching: uh, avoid the temptation um, to uh, to not miss the not yet in the resurrection in terms of Easter. Easter should be triumphant, but in some levels. Easter Sunday for most of us is a little bit like try. It's really more like Palm Sunday because we we um, we still have the cross in front of us in many ways. Not the kind that we need to save ourselves, but the cross of living and suffering. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, right. everybody. Take care. Hey, listeners! Thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation, and will join us back here next time. Until then. Thanks for listening, and God bless.